to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, well, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is the word of the Lord. So here we see a man who possesses sort of the trifecta of what most people desire in life, money, youth, and influence. If you go to Matthew or Luke's uh, rendering of this story, they title it the rich young ruler, and that's kind of the one I'm going to run off of. But this is a guy with money, youth, and influence who approaches Jesus with one of the fundamental questions really of the age, which is this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, that's the question, right? That's the question as we're laying our head down on the pillow at night that we ask in terms of this. We know. We know that the death rate is one per person. We know that this life is short and it's fragile. And this is a man that was asking the defining question of our lives. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And, you know, it's funny because we read a question like that. And sometimes we just take it as a question and we separate it from the person who is asking the question. Because it's not just a question, is it? It's, it's a question who, that's attached to a person, to a man who was questioning his own mortality, right? He was having deep thoughts. He knew that something more significant than the wealth and the influence that he had was absent in his life. And it was starting to create an anxious ache inside of him. It could have been that he was struck by the inescapable fact that money, youth, and influence, dude, those are delicate things by nature, aren't they? They're fleeting things. They're delicate. And we should kind of be struck by that too. 
We should be struck by the same thought that this brother was struck with. I mean, when you think back, you don't have to go back that far, right, to do a little to do a little research on what was going on in this guy's mind and heart. In other words, think about this. Nobody that was alive as recent as the year 1900 has any of the possessions that they worked like dogs to accumulate all of their lives. I mean, that wasn't that long ago, right? You know, you look at life and you have to ask the question, who's the big winner? Like, who's the big winner in all of this? Mortality. Yay, mortality's the big winner, right? Mortality has never lost once. And because of that, the reality is that eternity is always hanging in the balance of our lives. And we all have a relationship with eternity. We have a relationship with the reality of that word. And how that plays out practically for us inside of our heads is that we don't want this life to be the end. We don't want this to be all that there is. And what's crazy about that is subconsciously, we kind of know that it's not. Ecclesiastes 3.11, Old Testament book, says God has put eternity into man's heart. What that means is that it's built into us. We are eternal beings. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 1.20 that God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived, he says, ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. We know intrinsically that there is more to this life than this life. We know there's something beyond this life. We know this world is not the end. And at the same time, there's a part of us that feels like we need to earn our place in the next world. And, and that makes sense, doesn't it? You know, there's a very real thing about that that makes sense. Because doing a good job is how one typically earns, you know, a promotion in the workplace. And we're raised with that. That's the way that the world works. In the religious world, we've primarily been told that good deeds are what earn you favor with God. And entrance into the pearly gates, right? So our default way of thinking is that doing good deeds gets us something. Doing good deeds is what makes a person good. And good people are the ones who escape, you know, the guy in the red with the horns and the pitchfork. There's something that we default back to that even if we don't look at it that closely and clearly. But the storyline of the Bible, interestingly enough, and what we're going to see here in this interaction, in this conversation with Jesus and this young dude, the storyline tells us something entirely the opposite. And here's what's dramatic about the storyline of the Bible. The Bible tells us that the only people, the only people who God declares good, I have that, in, I have that written down in italics, the only people who God declares good and will allow entrance into his kingdom are 100% down and out charity cases. And you know, like, we don't like that. I don't like that. You don't like that. Because if that's true, it means we don't get to determine or define what's good enough to earn eternity. That's what the implications are for that. We're just like the man we read about in, in verse 17 who comes to Jesus and he kneels before him and he says, 
good teacher. That's how he addresses Jesus. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, again, he wasn't being snarky when he came to Jesus and addressed him as good teacher. He was showing Jesus honor by addressing him as good teacher, but it's interesting how Jesus responds. Jesus calls on him to reflect on the way he defines the word good. And that's a reflection that we should probably have too, because I tend to think that we use the word good pretty loosely, I think in our everyday vernacular, right? Most of us are pretty quick to say, you know, he's, such, he's a good guy, or she's a really good person. And you know what? People can do good things. In the ways that we define good. People can do good things. But the Bible tells us that although we can do good, nobody can be good. Nobody can be good through in and throughout without divine intervention. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 3.12, he says this rather cheery verse. No one does good, not even one. Like, for those of you who think the Bible's really confusing sometimes, that's not confusing. Like, if you look all those words up in the original language, that's what it says. No one does good, not even one. So we have a hard time with this defining of the word good. It's like that time your kindergartner brought you a picture they drew at school, and you probably lied and said, that's really good. But if you take the picture and you put it next to a, roll with me on this, next to a Picasso, you know, just saying you had that spare Picasso sitting in the closet and you put it next to a Picasso, it doesn't really warrant that kind of praise because it's not up to the standard of how we define good. Some of you are like, Ronnie, that's the meanest thing I've ever heard. No wonder your kid doesn't draw pictures anymore, right? But to be clear, what we want to understand here, though, is that Jesus is not telling this man that he himself is not good or that he himself is not God. He's pointing out that God alone is deserving to be called good, and that, therefore, says something about who he is and about his identity. Because this man is not approaching Jesus as God, but as good teacher, which, by the way, is all false religion in a nutshell, which is Stripping away the divinity of Jesus by saying, brother was just a good teacher, just a social justice activist. He was just a great moral leader, those things that you hear about Jesus, but he wasn't really God. So Jesus begins the conversation by saying, the standard for good, if we're going to use the word, the standard for good is God. And then says, here's the commandments one needs to keep perfectly for one to become good to God. And he lists those things out as we look down in verse 18. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Now, my first thought when I read something like this and I read the response that this brother made uh, is that he's a a pretty self-assured dude. And really, uh, you, you have to be a pretty self-assured dude who stands before Jesus and immediately rattles off all of these I have kept from my youth in verse 20. But at the same time, interestingly enough, the text doesn't really give us the sense that 
that this guy's being arrogant either. That's not the tone that we get from this text. The fact that he falls on his knees before Jesus as he approaches Jesus would actually tell us otherwise. But you know what else should strike us here? Jesus doesn't, doesn't argue with him. Jesus doesn't argue with his claim of keeping those commandments. Because there's a good chance that on the outside, this brother did keep the commandments, right? He never murdered anyone. I'm just, you know, we're just going to go with how he laid it out. He probably never murdered anybody. He didn't, hadn't committed adultery. He hadn't stolen anything. He hadn't lied to anybody. He hadn't cheated. He hadn't dishonored his parents. But, of course, the question that that raises up for us is, is that really what, what that's all about? Because Jesus reexamines that line of thinking in his Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 when he says this. He says, uh, you have heard that it was said. He goes back. He quotes the commandments. He says, you've heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus just flips the paradigm we have for externally obeying the law and thinking, you know, thumping our chest and thinking we're in and we're, we're good. So what this tells us early in this convo with this rich young guy is that you can do the right thing, right? How many, how many times do we, there was like a movie, right? Do the right thing. It's a common phrase for us. But what Jesus is saying here is that you can do the right thing and still be guilty, Right? In other words, you can do the right thing wrongly. And so this convo that Jesus is having with this, with this young, influential, wealthy guy, it feels a bit cut and dry up to this point. Until you read verse 21, and this is where you see this divinely human heart of Jesus come sort of bursting out. It says Jesus looked at him and he loved him, right? He didn't blast him. He looked at him. He loved him. You can only imagine, again, think of how this guy is described, young, wealthy, influential. You can only imagine the kind of looks and the kind of love a man in his position was used to receiving Right? Can you imagine, you know, men. Men just wanted to be like him. Men aspired to be like somebody like this. Men, you know, women wanted to be with him, right? This was somebody that women would have been attracted to. No doubt his servants wanted to obey him. Everybody was hanging on to this guy. This guy had claws in him. He was desired for certain things. The certain things that he was desired for created an identity for him. So different how Jesus responds. Because it's always so different how Jesus responds. Jesus listens. Jesus just listens. And then Jesus looks. He doesn't just look at him, right? He's, he's not just like checking out like, you know, what the dude's wearing that day and, you know, get, getting, a, getting a feel for, you know, kind of his style. Jesus looks at him, and he looks at him in a, in a way that shows that he loved him. There's a tenderness. There's a heart that Jesus 
had that went out for somebody that was honestly asking him, what must I do? And we don't want to miss that moment. We don't want to miss this almost seemingly insignificant passage that tells us Jesus stopped, looked, and loved him. Because this is where we see truth and grace at its most beautiful and sort of unbridled right here. Do you wonder if Jesus looks at you and loves you like this? Because this was the first time this guy had ever experienced a look like that and a love like that. Because as you wrestle through that same nagging sense of mortality, and if even if you're somebody who has committed their lives to Christ, you still have wrestles with that. If you wrestle through that, remember the way that this man was looked at and loved by Jesus. Because he's looking at you and he's loving you like that even right now. Even right now with your questions. Even right now with your doubts about these things that trouble us as we open God's word. We don't know what to do with some of these things. Remember the response that Jesus has. The response of Jesus is not to crush. It's to care. It's to care. And Jesus doesn't argue. He's so gracious, yet he's so truthful. He says you lack one thing. Wait, one thing? One thing. Is that really true? It actually is. We only ever lack one thing that keeps us from inheriting eternal life. And what's interesting is that this is not the place our friend thought this conversation was going to go with Jesus. You ever had a conversation like that? Sit down with somebody, you need to express your thoughts and your heart, and it just was not what you came to talk about, and it just, it just took, a, took a detour, right? That's happened to all of us. But at the same time, it's what you needed to hear. This is what's happening to this brother right now. Jesus says, hey, this is what you lack. This is what I need you to do. Sell all your possessions, give the money to the poor, and follow me. And he says, you know, don't worry, because, you know, the, the exchange rate is, like, really good in heaven, you know, for when you give your stuff away and what gets accumulated up there on the heels of that. Now, Jesus is not saying that selling all your possessions is the key to salvation. That's not what he's saying right here. John 3.16 doesn't say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever sells all his possessions should not perish but have eternal life. Clearly not what he is communicating here. Jesus was revealing that the love this man had for his possessions was keeping him from seeing his deepest need. He couldn't see it. He just couldn't see it. It's kind of like what Scott just described. This is a dude that loves guitars, right? And it was something that had become, he had become enslaved to. He couldn't see it. Until three years ago, he had been enslaved by it for eight years. At one point, God opened his eyes because he, he couldn't see it. He didn't have the ability. He lacked ability. And this brother's possessions had just ended up possessing him because that is the power that our possessions have. It says in verse 22, 
that after he hears this from Jesus, after Jesus looks at him and loves him and says, here's what I need, here's what you lack, it says he walks away sorrowful because he was disheartened. Imagine standing in the presence of Jesus. Imagine clutching your wallet in your hand and walking away from Jesus because he said, give it to the poor and follow me. Imagine getting in your car and driving away from Jesus after he asked you to sell it and to follow him. It's strange when we have a death grip on something, when something even less than death can take it from us. But he kept those five commandments, though, hadn't he, right? Maybe. But he was proving to Jesus that he was violating the very first commandment, which is, you shall have no other gods before me. That's what Jesus is illustrating to this poor brother. James chapter 2, verse 10 warns us, he says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. So let's just assume that that first commandment was the only one that this brother had ever broken. It meant that he was guilty of all the law. And we get into verses 23. We don't hear, that's how the story ends. We don't hear the follow-up. We're left guessing. But Jesus turns back to his disciples and says, man, it's hard for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Don't start looking at other people as being the wealthy in this. He said it's hard. He says it's easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. Basically all that means is it's an opening that's too small for these big camels. That was the analogy he was trying to give. Big animal trying to fit and just squeeze his way through something. So it's easier for that to happen than for somebody whose possessions possess him to enter the kingdom of God. And then it says this amazes and astonishes the disciples. Like they're kind of like, they're like flabbergasted. I like that word. It's not in the text, I've just said it. But it amazes and astonishes the disciples. The wealthy back then were looked upon as being uniquely blessed and, and favored by God. There's something about being wealthy back in that day that people thought, oh, well, obviously they have found peace and favor and blessing with God. And you know what's interesting is that we do the same thing. We kind of get fooled by this too. You know, when we got back from vacation a couple weeks ago, we, we, uh, we came home to a stack of People magazines, don't judge, uh, that someone had bought us a, a, a gift subscription to. I don't, it's probably one of you guys. Thank you, I, you know, I think. Um, for those of you who don't want to admit that you read People magazine, uh, it's basically a magazine with a bunch of inspirational stories kind of covering, you know, the human side of, you know, celebrities. Celebrities, they're just like us, you know, kind of a thing. You know, and you, you get to see all the charitable causes they participate in. You, you know, they do, they do really, you know, they, they do these pieces on them spending quality time, you know, with their, with their families. They, they show some of the physical hardships that they've had to uh, endure. And, and, you know, we, we actually eat it up. We eat up things like this. We're fascinated and surprised to see the rich and famous perform good deeds and random acts of kindness. And on the flip, uh, we seem equally shocked when they're caught in a scandal, which is when they end up on the cover of Us Weekly, right? Um, 
I love how many of you laughed, even though you all bought that last issue last week. Subconsciously, what's going on there is we think that if these beautiful, wealthy people can't make it, like what hope is there for us? Because they got it all, right? They got it all. They got the money, they got the looks, they have the influence. And that's the question the disciples ask Jesus in verse 26. They say, well, then who can be saved? Jesus, help us work this out. Like if this brother's out, how, how does that look for us? What does that mean for us? What are the implications about people like us that don't have anything? And Jesus replies in verse 27, he says, with man it is impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. Jesus is saying it's impossible for man to be justified by keeping God's commandments because no one has kept them perfectly. And a perfect God demands, as he should and as he does, perfection. We can't stand before a holy, righteous God as unholy, unrighteous people. It doesn't work that way. What Jesus was preparing the disciples to see in this moment was how God would make it possible for unrighteous people to attain righteousness and gain eternal life. Because they are just days away from seeing Jesus die to make it possible. So that possibility that Jesus is laying out right now, he's about to accomplish it. And then you got Pete, verse 28, snaps back a little bit. Feel like there's a little tone right there? He says, see, we have left everything and followed you. Like we've done the very thing this man refused to do, Jesus. Come on. And Jesus reassures him in verse 29. He says, believe it or not, everything a person gives up for Jesus and the gospel, the good news. He said he'll receive a hundredfold back in this life with some persecutions. You know, that's the cherry on top. But eternal life in the age to come. What this means is that those things that we leave behind, those things that we sell, those things that possess us, those possessions, those things that we give away so that they don't have a death grip on us. In exchange for following Christ and believing the gospel, Jesus is saying, you are going to be provided for. You will be provided for. By God, through the grace and generosity of other people that have done the same thing. By other followers of Christ. All of these things will be added unto you when you seek first my righteousness. I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not dropping you in a place where your needs are not going to be taken care of because you give away the majority of your wants. He said, I'm going to take care of your needs and I'm going to do it by surrounding you with people that have done the same thing that you have done. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? Of God's provision through the body of Christ. This is the church. We, we see this unfold even in our community groups. Which is why we encourage you all to be involved in a, in a community group. Because God's design is not independence. He's not advocating independence. He's saying not independence, interdependence. That's what happens when the body of Christ gives away the things that grip them and possess them and trust in the Lord. He said, I'm going to surround you with a body of believers that are going to help you and care for you. 
Why? Why is he that gracious? Because there's a cost for following Jesus. He's not screwing around with them. There's a cost. Luke 14, Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, what? And brothers and sisters, okay. Yes, and even his own life, Jesus says, he can't be my disciple. Now, is he saying literally like go up to your dad and like slap, you know, like we're out and we're done with this relationship? No, he's saying that your love for Christ has to surpass the love that you have for anybody or anything else. 1 Timothy 3, 12 through 13 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's what he added there, just sort of, you know, on the side. While evil people and imposters, it says, will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So there's two things I want us to focus on in this passage. As we examine ourselves, as we examine our stuff, as we're all feeling the weight of our stuff that we love. I'm thinking of things right now that I love I'm thinking of just tiny, pointless, irrelevant things that even right now in my head, I'm thinking like, can I just keep that one, right? Can I just keep the red shoes? I'll give away the black ones. I'm sorry, you know that would be the opposite for me. I slipped right there. But the first thing I want us to be aware of and to pray through and to consider and to walk away from having connected with this in our heart, is this. Let's beware of possessions creating sorrowful dependence. Let's beware of possessions that create sorrowful dependence. It said he walked away disheartened and sad. Why? Why did he walk away disheartened and sad? Did Jesus take away his possessions? No, he freely returned to his wealth. Then why so sad? Why so sad? Because he wasn't free. That's why he was sad. Because Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You're caught in that kind of flux. It ends in sorrow. And a disheartened countenance. He says at the end of Matthew 6, you cannot serve God and money. Jesus says it doesn't work. We don't have the capacity for that kind of division in our life. Why wasn't eternal life enough for this brother? That's what he's asking for. Why wasn't eternal life enough for this brother? After all, that's what he was seeking, supposedly. I think it's because if it's just eternal life we're after, it's as fleeting as temporal riches. See, at the end of the day, this man didn't lack eternal life. He lacked life with Jesus. Revelation chapter 1, 17 through 18 says, Fear not, this is Jesus talking, I am the first and the last and the living one. He said, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have, he says, the keys of death and hell. See, some people are just frightened enough of hell that the only thing they really want from Jesus is an escape from it. Maybe that's you. 
Is escaping from hell a bad desire? No. But this man just wanted eternal life insurance. That's what he wanted. Is that, listen, oh, brothers and sisters, is that your Christianity? Was there a moment that you came to Christ in fear of maybe the kind of church you were in? We had some brother up there just banging on the pulpit and scared you into eternal life insurance. There's no mention of Christ. There's no mention of the kind of care and compassion that the creator of the universe had by dying on the cross because he looked at you and he loved you and he wanted a relationship with you so that your possessions weren't the thing that were creating and wreaking havoc and misery in your life. Was it explained to you like that? Or was it, say the prayer, because that gets you up there. Examine your Christianity. Examine your Christianity. Jesus says in John 12, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Eternal life is life with Jesus. It's not a life insurance policy after we leave the earth. Because separating eternal life from life with Jesus, what is it? It's religion. And it will become just another possession that will work to earn and be sorrowful when we think we haven't worked hard enough to keep it. So that's the first thing. The second and the final thing is this. Let's rejoice. Let's rejoice that we gain much more than we ever give up. Now, again, let's go back to this because I want to make sure we're clear here. Do these verses advocate selling all your possessions? Not necessarily. But don't let out a collective sigh of relief so fast, right? What Jesus surfaced was the heart of what this man truly loved, which exposed what he truly worshipped. His command was to let it go. It should concern us if we felt relieved when I said, you don't necessarily have to sell your possessions to follow Christ. Because you know what? You may have to. You may need to do something as dramatic as this man said. So we don't want to step too far away from the clear instruction that Jesus gave to this brother. Now, it wasn't that selling his possessions was going to earn him salvation but it was going to illustrate a changed heart inside of him that was eager to follow Christ because of the grace that was offered to him in that moment as Jesus looked at him and loved him. More importantly, you should look at those things that would dishearten you as we talk about this and make you sorrowful were you to let them go. Think about that as I continue. Think about something in your life that if you let it go, you would feel like you didn't have a life anymore. Does your wealth reveal what you worship? It doesn't necessarily have to. The question is, does it? 
This is hard. Because we're a wealthy church. This is hard for a wealthy church like us. You're thinking, what, dude, what, real, like we're in a gym. Where are you getting this wealth stuff from? But we're a wealthy church. And in fact, for any of us to even think that we're not a wealthy church kind of indicates that we are because only a wealthy church has the privilege to even examine these things in the way that we are able to. The question is not do you have stuff, but does your stuff have you? Do you need to examine that? Ronnie, I'm not materialistic. Okay. Here's one for you. Then does your frugality rule you? Is your assurance and hope tied up in how much you don't buy but save and stack? Scrooge McDuck. Because on the cross, Jesus gained so much more for us than we actually give up or that we actually save. And this should be what leads us to be a church that is abundantly generous to one another. And let that flow out to our community. Matthew 6, 19 through 20 says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust doesn't destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. What if we, as we examine ourselves, as we see those possessions that have a death grip on us, that possess us? What if we intentionally gave away some things as a way to cultivate a deeper dependency on Jesus to be the source of that comfort and that reliability and that joy? Let me talk about camping for a second. Let me just dispel some inaccuracies because Melissa and I went camping a couple weeks ago. And nobody should be so shocked that Melissa and I went camping. Why is, that, why is that shocking? I got all you guys coming up to me saying, like, I can't believe you went camping. Dude, we're campers. I mean, we're like, we're, camp, like, we're campers, right? You guys need to know that. Why do people camp? Still figuring out that one. People camp to interact with nature, okay? People camp to be surrounded by beauty, you give up something to camp. And I'm guessing it's kind of a lot at this point. You give up the comforts of home, don't you? You brave the elements because you receive something that you don't get in your living room. You receive a treasure that's not available in the kitchen. You receive the treasure of trees and lakes and trails and campfires and the wonder of nature it's a horrible analogy I'm giving right now. But you gain more than you give up. So as we close, let me just reiterate something. Selling your possessions doesn't earn eternal life. I have to say that. A lot. It just exposes what you love more than Christ. So that you can repent to Christ of what you love more than him. Think about this. This rich young dude probably went to church again the next Sunday 
after his encounter with Jesus. He may have even put some, some of his chariots on Craigslist. Like he may have taken those steps, right? I'm guessing his convo with Jesus didn't stop him from continuing to keep those commandments that he had kept, right? In fact, it may have caused him to double down on his efforts. But what was missing? What was missing? What was missing was actually the crux of his question. What was missing was inheritance. What was missing was inheritance because eternal life is not earned. It's inherited. God's commandments, what they do is they show us we can't keep them. But then God's gospel shows us Jesus kept them for us. And then he forgives those who repent that they can't keep them. And that's when the inheritance of riches, of grace, and eternal life are laid on our account. Keeping God's commandments doesn't redeem us. It's simply the fruit that comes out of an already redeemed person. So can we examine that in our lives so that we can be an American church that's not possessed by our possessions and maybe take some rigorous and painful and brave and grace-drenched steps that removing some of those barriers in our life not because we're earning favor with God, but because in Christ, God's favor rests on us so graciously. And that Jesus looks at us, and he loves us, and he doesn't want some of these good things that he's given us to be the thing that captures our love in our hearts. Because he needs to be that. Amen? Let me pray. God, we, we come before you and we, we read about the way that your son interacted with this young, wealthy, influential ruler. And for some of us, it's hard to relate. But we also know, Lord, that we are people who are easily gripped and possessed by however few or however many possessions that we have. We also know that Jesus came to free us from being enslaved to things that are of such a temporal nature. And we know that eternity is only in the balance for those who haven't received that free inheritance of eternal life that comes by trusting in Jesus to save us above and beyond our possessions. Lord, help us to help us to see the fruit evidenced in a life that is willing, that has a heart to forsake all of those things that may trap us and may fool us into a level of comfort that in the end, if it were ever to be taken away from us, would produce sorrow. Give us courage, Lord to seek after you, to seek after those joyful things that come as the result of giving our lives completely over to you. What a thing. What a testimony we may have seen from this young ruler 
had he done that. But Lord, you gave this as a, as a warning, as an implication to the condition of all of our hearts. We're not very far away from this man. We are this man. And we pray that we would be honest about these things, Lord, that, that seek to devour us. Lord, give us such a great desire and affection for you that we see these things that you've given us as great gifts, as good gifts, but gifts that are expendable so that they don't exhaust the joy and the riches of grace that we inherit from you when we redirect our trust. So Lord, just help us in this. Help us wrestle and re-examine through this passage, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.